Welcome to the October 2015 podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal. One of the biggest clinical and technological advances in respiratory care in recent years is the high-flow nasal cannula. Consistent with that interest, we published five papers on this topic this month. The aim of the Editor's Choice Study by Vargas and colleagues was to assess the short-term physiologic effects of high-flow nasal cannula. They compared high-flow nasal cannula, 5 centimeters of water of CPAP, and oxygen therapy by face mask. Compared to conventional oxygen therapy, high-flow nasal cannula reduced inspiratory effort and improved oxygenation. Riteyami et al. compared the physiologic effects of high-flow nasal cannula to conventional oxygen therapy in subjects with acute dyspnea and hypoxemia in the emergency department. Underlying pathophysiology included congestive heart failure, acute asthma, COPD exacerbation, and pneumonia. They found that high-flow nasal cannula improved dyspnea and comfort in subjects presenting with acute dyspnea and hypoxemia. In a retrospective analysis of a heterogeneous population of medical and trauma ICU subjects who received high-flow nasal cannula therapy, Gaunt et al. evaluated the effect of high-flow nasal cannula on patient outcomes. Of the 145 subjects who received high-flow nasal cannula, 24% received invasive mechanical ventilation prior to high-flow nasal cannula, 15% received invasive mechanical ventilation after high-flow nasal cannula, and 61% never received invasive mechanical ventilation. High-flow nasal cannula was associated with decreased ICU and post-ICU lengths of stay and reduced incidence of adverse events. In a single center before and after design, Nagata et al. evaluated the effect of high-flow nasal cannula for hypoxemic respiratory failure on the use of mechanical ventilation. In the post-high-flow nasal cannula period, there were significantly fewer subjects requiring invasive or non-invasive ventilation. In the study by Park et al., airway pressure measurements and electrical impedance tomography were employed to assess the relationship between flows of up to 100 liters per minute with high-flow nasal cannula and changes in lung physiology. Airway pressure and lung impedance increased linearly with increased gas flow. Airway pressures observed were in the range used clinically with non-invasive ventilation. We publish a thoughtful editorial by Roberts and Ockler in which they present a perspective on high-flow nasal cannula and the treatment of acute hypoxemic respiratory failure. Although the studies in this issue of respiratory care add to the growing literature suggesting high-flow nasal cannula as a potential alternative to conventional oxygen therapy and non-invasive ventilation, further large randomized clinical trials of diverse acutely ill populations remains warranted. The aim of the study by Valden et al. was to determine whether a dedicated team of respiratory therapists applying non-invasive ventilation reduces the risk of intubation or death in subjects with COPD admitted for respiratory failure. Hospital mortality, median length of stay, and intubation risk were lower after implementing the respiratory therapist team. The authors concluded that delivery of non-invasive ventilation by a dedicated team of respiratory therapists was associated with a lower risk of death or intubation in subjects with respiratory failure secondary to COPD exacerbation.
Sai and colleagues conducted a web-based survey among members of healthcare professional practice organizations representing respiratory therapists, nurses, and others. A module in aerosolized medications included submodules for antibiotics, pentamidine, and ribavirin. Implementations of safe handling guidelines for pentamidine were not universal, placing workers and others at risk of exposure. Although the antibiotics included in this study lack authoritative safe handling guidelines, prudence dictates appropriate exposure controls. Olson and colleagues compared pressures generated from the resistor components of commercial flow-dependent positive expiratory pressure valves. Pressures generated from the different proprietary resistor components of the four commercial PEP devices were not comparable, even though the diameter of the resistance is reported to be the same. Because the pressures generated are significantly different, the resistors may not be interchangeable. Berlinski and Willis evaluated the effect of tidal volume, nebulizer type, and position in a pediatric model of albuterol delivery during mechanical ventilation. No differences in drug dose or delivery efficiency were found among different tidal volumes for the jet nebulizer at both positions evaluated and for the vibrating mesh nebulizer placed at the ventilator. Moving the nebulizers from just before the Y-piece to the ventilator increased lung dose and delivery efficiency for most conditions. The study by Vanello and colleagues was designed to identify the clinical and pulmonary function variables signaling risk of exacerbation in subjects with quadriplegic cerebral palsy. They found that diagnosis of gastroesophageal reflux and increased arterial PCO2 may be simple and clinically useful markers of increased exacerbation risk in young subjects with quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Siegel et al. described their experience with flexible bronchoscopy for the removal of tracheobronchial foreign body. A systematic review of the literature was also conducted. Foreign body aspiration is a rare indication for flexible bronchoscopy in adults. Flexible bronchoscopy has a high success rate for removal of inhaled foreign bodies and can be considered the preferred initial procedure for diagnosis and removal of airway foreign bodies in adults. It is unclear whether the inspiratory times used during manual hyperinflation generate effective expiratory flow bias. In a bench study by Bennett et al., inspiratory times of at least 3 seconds with normal compliance and at least 2 seconds with lower compliance appear necessary to achieve expiratory flow bias. Questions remain regarding the safety and effectiveness of manual hyperventilation, a technique not commonly used in the United States. Fort et al. evaluated the association between clinical, lung function, sleep quality, and polysomnographic variables with two health-related quality-of-life questionnaires in young adults with cystic fibrosis. Sleep quality index score, six-minute walk distance, sleepiness scale score, and FEV1 were predictors of the World Health Organization quality-of-life shorter version scores domains. Age at diagnosis, Clinical score, sleep quality score, six minute walk distance, sex, apnea, hypopnea index, body mass index, age, arousal index, FEV1, and pulmonary arterial systolic pressure were predictive of the specific CF questionnaire scores domains. 
The aim of the study by Liu and Quan was to identify the biomarkers for predicting refractory mycoplasma pneumonia on time for initiating steroid therapy in children. They found that serum lactate dehydrogenase might be used as a biomarker to predict refractory mycoplasma pneumonia in the early stage of hospitalization. Skinner et al. investigated physiotherapy in ICU subjects during acute hospitalization. The frequency and type of physiotherapist assessment and treatment were extracted from medical records. Positioning, lung hyperinflation, and suctioning were the most frequently performed respiratory care activities in the ICU. Salen and colleagues evaluated different PEP and CPAP devices on inspiratory capacity as a measure of induced changes in functional residual capacity. Provided that total lung capacity was constant, they found that changes in inspiratory capacity could be used as a measure of changes in functional residual capacity in healthy volunteers. All investigated devices except the PEP bottle decreased inspiratory capacity. This month, we publish a review on ventilator-associated pneumonia and a New Horizons paper on airway pressure release ventilation and high-frequency oscillatory ventilation. We are also pleased to publish the abstracts that will be presented at the 2015 International Respiratory Care Congress in Tampa. I hope to see many of you at this year's Congress. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.